It's a complex question, isn't it? What would Jesus say to Vladimir Putin? What would Jesus say to every single leader throughout time about this particular concept of war? What would Jesus say about war? I say it's complex, and I would even venture past that and say it's extremely complex. It's complex mainly because human lives are at stake. And we sit with that and perhaps could spend all of our time just sitting with that concept. Just sitting with that idea that war is most difficult and most complex because it involves people. There are, at different times, lives at stake, yes, by engaging in war, but what makes it complex is the reality that there are times that not engaging in war costs lives. And, and therein lies this tension, if you were to think about it like holding a pencil, Without both sides of the tension, the issue drops. And so right off the bat, I want to confess that a few minutes is impossible to cover all that God has to say. We could trace from the beginnings of conflict in Genesis straight through to the culmination of Armageddon in Revelation. And, and, and we could look at all facets along the way and all issues along the way and who God is and who we are and all of the things. And, and I just I want you to know that I'm not going to do that today. So forgive me for not giving you all of it, but what I do want to do is begin that conversation for you in your head, and then I want to encourage you to begin to do what the body of Christ is supposed to do. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. I I want to encourage you to iron sharpens iron, right? That this would be something that would spur a conversation for you and your family, for you and your friends, for you and your city group. That this, this would be something that when you're at the water cooler, that what God has to say would be percolating in your mind as you begin to hear things out and around in our world. That you wouldn't just run to your favorite news station, whatever that is, or your favorite Twitter account, or wherever it is you get your news That that wouldn't be the first thing on your mind. That actually what the Lord of heaven and earth has to say would be the first thing on your mind. And so as Jesus followers, though, we have to back up before that, right? We can't just jump to war. (laughs) We have to back up and ask ourselves, what is the actual call of God to his people, right? What's the call of God to you and me, to Redeemer City Church. Because the last I checked, none of us has the power to declare war. And so we have to 
step back. We have to like take out just for a moment the secular world and the secular worldview and focus in on the church. How ought we think about our own lives when it comes to this topic? Who are we in Christ? The Sermon on the Mount is arguably Jesus' most famous sermon. It's one of the longest we have recorded. And it's really important because it's a manifesto of sorts about what it looks like for the kingdom of God to break forth into the earth through his people, through you and me, through ordinary people. It's what Paul says, right? That God chooses, 1 Corinthians says, to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So what appears on the surface as strength in the world, war, is actually not at all the way that God chooses to work through his people today. Let me just give you a little portion in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. The Bible says this, You have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Secular ethics. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we would all define neighbor if we were just simply considering our own thoughts, feelings, actions, attitudes, and support for number one. (laughs) We would all define that differently based on our circumstance. But look at verse 44. But I say to you, so Jesus, again, just continuing to bring these new ideas to the surface, says to his audience, which was large, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that anytime you have a so that you're going to get something that is invaluable to the people of God. He's saying, love your enemies. You're going to brush past that because we can't help it if you've been in church for any amount of time. You know that already. But the reason that this particular passage is so powerful is because you have to round the corner and think about the people that you know that are being affected by their enemies. What is Jesus asking for a follower of Jesus, many of whom we support in Ukraine right now? And by the way, they're very good at this. We'll send out an update Shortly with worship services that are taking place right now. Strength beyond our imagination because Jesus calls to a different kind of ethic. Pray for those who persecute you so that critical peace you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He keeps going. For he, God, makes the sun rise on evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? They were the scumbags back then. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than everybody else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? They were second scumbags. That would have been you and I, by the way. 
And then this flabbergasting statement to sum it all up. You, therefore, must be what? What's it say? Perfect. That's going well. As your heavenly father is perfect. Why would Jesus say something that's impossible in the midst of something that is so real, so difficult, so in your face? Because you on your own strength and your own worldview and your own power and your own plans will never succeed at loving your enemies. We can't. It's an altogether different power that comes from outside of yourself and is then implanted into yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Two things immediately jump off this text to me. Number one, God's ways are higher than our ways. Scripture says past finding out. God's ways are higher than our ways past finding out. And by the way, that is good news. When you look at the leadership around the world trying to tackle what is in front of us right now, we are struggling to determine what we ought to do with war if you are in our country looking across to the other side of the world. What is our role in that? Complicated. Because there's human beings on the receiving end of evil. There are human beings on the giving end of evil and no matter what our response is human lives are at stake it's good news that god is bigger than you and i the fact that you cannot understand everything that god understands is great news because it means that what you are unable to look at the world and understand and reconcile does not mean that there is not one sitting on the throne in heaven that does not have the ability to A, understand it, B, reconcile it, and C, in the scope of eternity, rectify it. Powerful. The second thing that jumps off that text to me is this. God has a countercultural calling for his kids. Can you and I solve the war around the world in the Middle East, in Ukraine, in South America, in all of the places that there is war? Can you and I solve those large scale problems? No, but we have a God who can through the countercultural kingdom of God, breaking through into earth as it is in heaven through his people, which, by the way, number in the billions around the world. What does it look like to affect change on this culture? It means to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What takes real strength to respond in war or to respond in peace? Love. It takes much more strength to not flex your muscles than it does to flex them. What's the call? Back up to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. The seventh promise in a list of nine was this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the, talk to me, peacemakers. For they, they shall be called the sons of God. 
this entirely different call of God for his kids is to be peacemakers. So Paul writes this in his manifesto under God's inspiration in Romans chapter 12, verse 18 to 21. He says, if peacemaking is the call, what does that look like today for you and I? What does it look like today? Here it is. If possible, what's the confession right out of Paul's mouth? If possible, there are going to be scenarios in which this isn't possible. Because you are only responsible for one half of the humanity's equation, your half. The person that you're looking eye to eye or screen to screen or whatever it is, they're responsible for the other half. You can only control half. So if possible, as far as it depends on who? You. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, say Christians, followers of Jesus, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Process that. Never. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, my ways are higher than yours past finding out. Though you cannot reconcile what you see right in front of you, I can, and vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, different kingdom ethic, right? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then here's this amazing statement. Do not overcome by evil, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. It's an entirely different view of humanity. And so without all that being said, this topic cannot stop there. And we all feel great about what we're talking about. Because it's complex. You cannot have this conversation without entering into the Old Testament and asking. All that. Is true. Why did Kevin mentioned it? This is when we were singing. Why did Jericho happen? Why did God order his own people to march into a promised land to them and not just say, hey, need you guys to leave. We love you. We're for you. Come hang out at the tabernacle with us sometime. Now, what did he say? He said, you're going to go, you're going to march around that city seven times and you're going to blow trumpets. And then I, God, am going to destroy that city. Well, how does that square with? As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If your enemy's hungry, give him food. How does that square We, we can't just blast past it, right? Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in the Old Testament, it says that there is a time for war. 
We must sit with it. We must see it. With the personal ethic of peacemaking in view, but the apparent okay on war in a grand scale from God, how do we make sense of what God says about war? And the reason I said I couldn't go through all of it is because we don't have even a little bit of time to unpack the Old Testament on war. But I would encourage you to. I would encourage you to dive into that. There are very good answers. But it's because there are very different scenarios in which God moves through his people throughout Scripture. God was their king and thus acted on their behalf in ways that he has not called us to respond in our day. So what do we do in our day? Go to Romans chapter 13. I want to look at the first seven verses with you. Romans 13 is here to help us make sense of it. And we are obviously in 2022, not the first group of humans to ever wonder What exactly am I supposed to do with my government? (laughs) Like understatement of the year, right? What, What are we to do with this land that we belong to that is not God's chosen people? Some of you, you came to church today and that's the only thing you needed to hear. America is not Israel. However, followers of Jesus, those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and are in his church are God's people. And for that, we have some of those in this country. Here's what Paul says about your role in this world. Verse number one of Romans chapter 13. Let every person, are there any exceptions to every person? Talk to me. Oh, you can do louder than that. Are there any exceptions? Online, I'm looking for it in the chat. No. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Very difficult. If you do not agree with said governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Aren't you glad that his ways are higher than your ways past finding out that this particular issue rests in the realms of heaven's courts in which my only role in heaven's courts is to what the Bible says to enter his courts with what? Praise. Thanksgiving. And bless his name. Therefore, whoever. So, so it, gets, it gets harder. <laughs> Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those will incur judgment. Yikes. But then, not all of this rests on you, by the way. There's instructions for government. And this is where the church of Jesus Christ stands up and says truth to power. There is a role in which the kingdom of God, which has come on earth through the church, speaks the truth to power. And this is what it is, because if God appointed you, then you had better 
do this in the way that God has designed it. And therein we vote. Therein we talk to our representatives. Therein we call to account the people in authority. We submit and then we speak the truth in love. Here's what it is. There is a vision for this from God. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. So what happens if God's servant for your good isn't doing your good? Leave it up to Jesus. And on this, he will heap burning coals on that person's head. What does it look like to be a peacemaker? Uh-oh. It's not good if we're not trying to make peace, but rather war. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The conscience has been obliterated in our society. What does it look like to have a soft conscience before the Lord? It means to spend time with him. So that when you turn on the news, when you get on Twitter, when you look at these things that are awful and evil, that you recognize awful and evil, that you don't just become commonplace with the things that are broken in our world. That when you see war, it's a broken aspect of our world that still breaks our heart. Verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Attending to this very thing, pay all to them what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Really difficult ethics to live by. But really important ethics to live by. We could unpack A gajillion things here, and and I've already started to things that aren't even in my notes. (laughs) They're they're free. But I I do want to give you four things from this text that I think are worth your consideration. And just again, know that we're just scratching the surface here. And I would encourage you to dig in much, much farther. Number one, if you're taking notes, these aren't going to be on the screen because I've been developing these all week long, all month long. And there's so many. I just picked four. (laughs) Number one, government is from God. If if you read Romans 13 and miss that, you've missed a lot. You've missed a lot because so much of the rest of the Bible, so much, and, and, and there, there really isn't arguing about like, well, what was the government like? Like if they're not following Jesus, Rome was not following Jesus. And Paul's telling Roman Christians to follow and submit to their government. And listen, there are things that there's a line there, right, where we stop following the government. There is a line and you should find that in Scripture and have convictions about that. But those convictions had better come from Scripture and not from your own thinking, because God says there's judgment for those of us that 
that step away from his plan and do our own. Very important because it's from God. You don't have to like the government you are under, but God calls us to honor it and submit to it. To resist that is sin, according to Romans 13. Because humanity, which we are a part of, is in sin and therefore needs restraint. Why is there government? Why is there law? Why does God have his own law? Because you and I need restraint. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's about to become a pastor, and this is one of the things he says to him. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, right? There is that caveat that some governments do not use it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, right? And there's more, there's more there, but I want you to just think that the law was created by God for restraint. And so how does that play and factor into war? How does that play? Number two, war is a fallen tool in the hands of fallen governments. Right? Whereas God took his people to Jericho and we can rest in the fact that he knew what we don't know. We don't have that luxury today. Because God is not the one walking us into these places and spaces and making those decisions and saying, act now, don't act now, give mercy here, there needs to be judgment here. We don't have that, and so we simply trust that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose, Romans chapter 8. C.S. Lewis can help us here, I think. He lived through World Wars 1 and 2, saw things that bothered him deeply. He wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. I would encourage you to pick it up if you want some more reading on this. But here's what one thing he said. I think the art of life consists in tackling each immediate evil, what? As we can. There's still this confession, right, that Paul said, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. This is coming through even in C.S. Lewis writing the art, right? It's an art. There, there's, this is not black and white. This is not do this, don't do that at all times. It's complex. We tackle each immediate evil as we can. To avert or postpone one particular war by wise policy or to render one particular campaign shorter by strength and skill or less terribly by mercy to the conquered and the civilians is more useful than all the proposals for universal peace that have ever been made. In other words, you could say what you want, but what actually brings what we are looking for? And then he describes this as just as the dentist who can stop one toothache has deserved better of humanity than all the men who think they have some scheme for producing a perfectly healthy race. Complex. What are you called to do? What are you called to do? 
To paraphrase that, doing good and tackling immediate evils with deliberate force at times can do more good than setting up position statements based in some humanistic view that improvement will inevitably come just because. Because newsflash, sin has always been here and will be here until Jesus comes again and makes all things new. Therefore, we're left with the tension. It doesn't work that way because we don't work that way because we're sinners. Don't be offended by that either. We all are. It is the thing that levels the playing field. It's the thing that tells all of us that we need Jesus. You know, one of the things that came to my mind immediately upon reading that, though, is like, what do you do with Matthew 5, right? Like, that's where we start. That's where we're in. You know, because one of those places in Matthew 5 says if you're if that if your enemy or that person it was to hit you, just turn the other cheek and let him hit you again. If they need your coat, give them two. Right. And you're like, yeah, or I could punch him in the face. <laughs> Lewis actually, in the same context, addresses that text, and, and he basically offers three ways of interpreting that. Let me just give them to you, just, just food for thought. Okay, first, the pacifist way of imposing a duty of non-resistance on all men in all circumstances. That, that's one way that you could respond to it when you read Matthew 5. A second way is to just minimize the command and say it's hyperbole. I do not agree with that. I think Jesus is being very serious with what he's saying. The third is taking the text at face value with the exception toward the exceptions. (laughs) Christians, Lewis says, cannot retaliate against a neighbor who does them harm. If I get hit in the face, I need to control myself and as much as it depends on me, live at peace with all men. But doesn't it get more complex if I'm standing there and this person is going to brush past me to punch you in the face? Then what's my responsibility? To just right this way, sir. I prefer the right cheek. Well, it gets more complicated then because if if I know that evil is coming to you, would I just stand back because I'm to live at peace with all men? No, no, no. I'm not at peace with you then if I knew you were about to be harmed and I do nothing. It's complicated. So, So we go from that to number three, if you want to write it down is that fighting a war is not necessarily evil, but it could be. Right? You, you go read Bonhoeffer, and he wrestled with these things, and his conclusion was silence in the face of evil is evil itself, right? Like, is, is there a space where doing nothing is not actually living at peace with all men? According to the text, Romans 13, God gives the government, not private citizens, the authority to administer punitive justice. Wars can be declared only by governments. So it brings us then to number four. All war is the result of evil. Every war is the result of evil. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, had to say in James chapter four, verse one and two. What causes quarrels and fights among you? 
Well, what's the cause of all that? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Is it, is it not what, what a, a one person in great power, his passions that war within him in Ukraine right now? And we could just bring that on down the ladder to our lives. What causes the war in me, the spiritual battle in me? Is it not that my passions are at war within me? Is it not Romans 7 where Paul says, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do do the things I, do, I don't want to do? I can't take it. <laughs> well, what's he say after that? He says, but thanks be to God. What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Super important. We could just, I could just keep talking and you're like, please don't. Conclusion. What's our response to all of that? I don't want you to have my thoughts on that. I just want to read you what the rest of Romans 13 says in verse 10 to 14. What is our response? What is our role in it? Look at verse 10 of Romans 13. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Right? Like, the church of Jesus Christ has to wake up, right? Jesus, when he looked at his disciples, he said, you've got to wake up. You've got to pick up your eyes and see people the way I see them. It's ripe for harvest, right? The hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Fact, when you first put your trust in Jesus, when you first confessed him as Lord, we are closer to his return now than we were when you confessed him as Lord. If you haven't confessed him as Lord, we are closer to him coming back than ever before. Confess him as Lord now. It's, it's that important. Because why? For the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is my role? Cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Because you, whether you know it or not, are in a war right now over your soul. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling, war and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and then what? Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Can I say it to you this way? We are to be peacemakers, not necessarily pacifists. We are to be peacemakers, not law breakers. Can I say it this way? We're to be lovers, not fighters. I'm just a lover, not a fighter. Amen. Amen. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men, knowing, knowing that there are things past your finding out. And trusting that God in his character, as scripture said, is love. And that at the end of the day, at the end of it all, 
All things will work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. I don't think it would be appropriate for us to have that kind of a heavy conversation without taking communion together. There are there are things that when they are out of our control, God's given us the places to meet him there. And confess that we, in fact, do not have control, right? There are places in Scripture that where, where God promises to participate with us, right? And so when we have moments like this where we don't understand everything that there is, we confess that, right? Because is it not, in fact, that Jesus went to war for you on the cross, Right. What does it say after he was on the cross and he passed away? What does it say? It says that he went to the depths of the earth to release prisoners. Right. And there, there are lots of different interpretations of that. And that's not my goal. The bottom line is Jesus went to war for you. Right. It began in Genesis chapter three. And Jesus is finishing that war. The victory is already yours. If you are in Christ, if you're not in Christ, I'd encourage you not to participate in this communion because we think it's a huge deal. We think it's a place that God comes to meet with us in these elements, that this pathetic excuse for a wafer that we're about to give you and this juice that is it's something that in those places. The Holy Spirit comes, Jesus comes and meets with his people. Right. And that comes straight out of first Corinthians 10. And I read it to you every time we take communion because I want it to be as natural to you as breathing. Paul says this, my beloved flee from idolatry. Is there any better pursuit for you right now as you think about being a peacemaker than to flee the idols that are in your heart? Money, sex, power, authority, all these things that make our passions war within us. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many. We are one body. Why is it so important for you to show up here? Because you're my elbow. I might be the lips that just flap and go on and on and on, right? But man, you're the feet and the hands and the heartbeat and the soul of the body of Christ. Because we all, Scripture says, partake of one bread. Extremely powerful. And so we take these things and I'd encourage you to grab it. And pull that wafer out of the top and just feel it in your hands because what scripture says is you are participating in Christ's body, right? We just came through Good Friday and then Easter. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we sing that God is still bringing dead things to life. I think about Ezekiel when he stood before the valley of dry bones and everything looked hopeless. And maybe that's you today. Everything in your life looks hopeless. Because of this, nothing is hopeless. 
There's not a single thing that's hopeless because you can participate right now in the body of Christ.